Hi, everyone, and welcome to the ninth episode of Sustainable Futures, Designing Green Communities and Buildings, a Living Architecture Monitor podcast from Green Roofs for Healthy Cities. My name is Stephen Peck, and I am your host today, as well as the founder and president of Green Roofs for Healthy Cities, or the North American Industry Association for Green Roofs and Walls. Today, I am delighted to be in conversation with Scott MacGyver, for he is a rare breed. He's someone who loves and studies urban insects. Now, we've all heard about the rapid decline of insect populations by now, particularly pollinating insects like bees, and how this does not bode very well for humanity. So it's great to have an opportunity to speak with someone who knows a ton about insects and bees in particular. Scott is an ecologist um, and an assistant professor in the Department of Biological Sciences at the University of Toronto Scarborough. He completed his undergraduate degree at the University of Guelph, his master's at St. Mary's University in Halifax, and his PhD at York University in Toronto. Prior to joining the University of Toronto, he taught at the Daniels Faculty of Architecture, Landscape and Design at U of T and at Toronto Metropolitan University. Scott has published his recent his research worldwide and has published over 60 scientific articles and book chapters on topics including urban ecology, green infrastructure, and biodiversity conservation. Most notably, Scott's work has led to a better understanding of how green roofs and other constructed or engineered green infrastructure can support urban wildlife, uh, particularly bees, including stormwater management, temperature cooling, food security, and all the other good things that come along with green infrastructure. He was awarded the 2022 Sustainability Science Award from the Ecological Society of America, the largest professional organization of ecologists in the U.S., and one of the largest ecological societies in the world. At the University of Toronto, Scott leads the Biodiversity of Urban Green Spaces, or BUGS Lab, appropriately named, where the aim is to balance trade-offs and find synergies in urban planning that supports both people and nature. This has led to leadership and collaborations at national and international levels to characterize urban biodiversity, promote its conservation, and integrate its ecosystem services contributions into green infrastructure. Locally in Toronto, he collaborates with city planners, policymakers, community members, and other stakeholders to promote and celebrate urban biodiversity to connect people to nature. Scott, thank you very much for being on the show and congratulations on becoming a new dad. Hey, thanks so much for the introduction to us. Great, thank you. It's great to have you here. Um, I've only met a few people in my life who have dedicated their lives to the study of insects. So <laughs> in a way you're a rare breed. Um, so what is it that initially drew you to this type of research and work? That's a good question. I mean, uh, the study of insects is entomology, right? So there's lots of us all around the world studying insects for various applications from agriculture to forestry to urban systems and planning. What really drew my fascination to insects was primarily, first and foremost, as a child, my mom. So going for walks, allowing me to kind of collect one thing each time, bring it home, bring it back the next day. So everything from praying mantises to bumblebees, all those kinds of uh, you know creatures that at that time spawned my interest in biodiversity, right? All the colors, the shapes, the kind of levels of interactions and all the details and distinctiveness 
uh, aspects of nature that, um, you know, you, you look a little closer, you really come to see it. And that was kind of really crystallized when I decided to go to university to study ecology, when I met two professors, uh, both retired now at the University of Guelph, Dr. Gard Otis and Dr. Stephen Marshall, uh, both them entomologists who spent their life working in behavior, you know, uh, honeybees, um, systematics and understanding new species, cataloging the diversity of life. And that really inspired me to think more about um, humans interactions with insects and in particular in urban environments where I grew up um, for thinking about ecosystem services and, you know, all those important attributes of nature that we even in cities depend on. Yeah. So it seems like you're not such a rare breed after all. No, there's lots, there's lots and lots of us. I mean, I'm a rare breed in that, uh, primarily trained as an entomologist. I early on began interacting in urban planning and architecture and some of the places where I would have met folks at greeners for healthy cities. And so maybe in those contexts, I'm certainly a rare breed. Yeah. Outside the lab. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, it's great uh, to have uh, individuals like you um, exploring these uh, these um, interrelationships. Um, there's been a lot written about biodiversity. We recently had the Montreal uh, uh, Congress and uh, signed an international treaty to try to preserve biodiversity um, mm -hmm. and the, the need to basically conserve about a third of the land and, and ocean ecosystems so that we don't, A, continue to destroy it, but we also continue to, I guess, reap the benefits of biodiversity. So maybe you could explain to us, like, what is actual biodiversity? What does it mean? And why should we care about it? Sure. Yeah. I mean, uh, I guess we can think of biodiversity as being, you know, the accumulation of species, of traits. I mentioned distinctiveness or uniqueness of genes um, that are characterized within a given area or space, right? We define it um, uh, depending on the context. So we could be looking at the biodiversity in the size of a pinhead in terms of the microbial life. Um, we could think of biodiversity of a green roof, right? All the species that are interacting uh, on one, you know, postage stamp in the sky, so to speak. And we could also think of biodiversity of the Pacific Ocean, of the entire world, right? So mm -hmm. it really is uh, somewhat of uh, a broad definition of uh, life, right? Uh, all the good, you know, uh, diverse aspects of life itself. And so that leads to why it matters, right? Why should we care about it? I mean, of course, biodiversity provides ecosystem services. And there's been dozens, if not hundreds and hundreds of, of studies that have shown the connection between species richness or diversity or uh, uniqueness within a community or uh, the kinds of traits that are possessed within a community and the ecosystem services that that environment provides, be it pollination, be it air purification, think like an urban forest, uh, soil nutrient dynamics, food production, all of these like direct, you know, or partially indirect, like tangible though, and quantifiable measures that make, uh, uh, that contribute to human, to nature's uh, uh, contribution to human uh, well-being, right? But so it's ecosystem just, ecosystem mm. services are the things that nature provides that allows us to survive. Thank you. Exactly. But it's not just that, right? There is intrinsic value of biodiversity. And what this means is that species uh, uh, have a right to exist, right? Whether they like immediately provide a benefit to humans or they contribute within their own e ecosystem or environment that is self-perpetuating and deserving of, uh, you know, 
relaxed or non-anthropogenic disturbance. And some of these intrinsic values, what this could mean is there could be value later on. We just haven't understood it yet. You know, we talked about oceans or all kinds of remote or far-flung or, or, or small aspects of biodiversity that may actually be really beneficial to us. And we're learning a lot about this now with the great growth of research into microbial diversity. Mm -hmm. They're important. <laughs> and when you say microbial, what do you mean by that? Microorganisms, right? So bacteria, fungi, um, uh, all kinds of things that, you know, uh, escape the naked eye, right? We need to look at them under the microscope and to identify their diversity. We're often using what we call DNA barcoding. So identifying like distinct gene sequences or features that tell us this is its own unique species. When we understand these patterns in communities, we can understand, for example, why bees visit certain flowers. In part, it's because of the bacteria and the uh, uh, microorganisms that are found in the nectar. Uh, our own microbiota in our guts can sometimes have influences on how we react to certain situations as well. So understanding and harnessing biodiversity in this way can be very fruitful and uh, derive meaning for people. But I mean, that meaning can, may not be today, it may be in the future. And so quickly, I'll just mention that our work in urban biodiversity um, it does align with some of the goals that the uh, uh, you know, global community is striving towards. We need to protect land to support biodiversity because there's a strong species area relationship. The more area preserved, the more biodiversity preserved. And from my perspective, we should be thinking of using this as like an all hands on deck approach. And that means we should be thinking about how even cities and places where people are contribute to this potential to conserve biodiversity. There's land that we set aside, but we also have to live. And so how can we live in ways that are as harmonious as possible with the nature around us? And let's come back to that theme uh, a little later in our discussion, uh, because it's I think it's a tremendously important uh, insight. Um, so if I understand it, a couple of things from what you're saying. One is that like the language the language of biodiversity used to be like species, individual species, but now it sounds to me like the language uh, of biodiversity is very much in DNA, like DNA sequences were right down to the, the blueprints that make up the creatures in the world. Is, yeah, is I mean, um, for all of the phenotypes, all the expressions that we see, the tongue length of a bee or how fast it flies or the color of the flower petals, these all have an underlying genetic basis. And so uh, not only can we delineate what we see as different species, but even within species, there's genetic diversity that we want to uh, support, right? So there may be, if, for example, a specific flower that we plant in uh, places all across Canada, and perhaps it's, it's native to all these regions and through millennia, it has persisted across the country in unique pockets, right, where gene flow is restricted. And in each of these areas from Alberta to Saskatchewan to Ontario to Quebec, different environmental conditions lead to different expressions of the genes of that particular species. So what you get is unique pockets of diversity, even within a species that make it better able to adapt to that condition or this condition. And so when conditions change, we have that insurance, right? And that insurance, as you mentioned, goes to the gene level. It can get to the trait level. Bees are pollinators. 
right? So if we lose a fifth of species in a particular area, we still have four fifths, right? Mm, this is yeah. insurance. And species level is, is the same, right? Um, yeah. You know, that was just thing that you mentioned about losing uh, the bee species. Because I remember when I was a kid going on long car rides with my parents, particularly one that was like an overnight um, ride or in the evening when it was dark and we would drive somewhere the more, and then the, the windshield of the car and the grill of the car would be literally covered with dead insects, you know, the next day. And yes. now you can almost drive for like nine hours straight through the United States and Canada at night and hardly kill any insects at all. Mm. Is this an indicator of what's happening to our insect populations in general, or is it some sort of uh, conspiracy theory or is this for real or how, how do we interpret this? I mean, you just provided an anecdote that many people have identified, right? In their, in their lifespan and, you know, this kind of um, uh, change, you know, generationally or over decades, et cetera. Um, and, and the amount of insects we're seeing on windshields is, is real, right? This is something that's something that we, many people have, have hit upon. And um, you also, interestingly, you mentioned overnight, you know, that particular point. And we got to think of insect diversity, of course, as wide range of life histories, life cycles, wide range of activity patterns, day, night, spring, summer, fall, et cetera, right? All of that still represents biodiversity as well. All the different niches in space and time that insects are occupying. So I will say that um, a lot of those insects that smash off our windshield, they're not bees, right? Bees aren't uh, flying across you know, roads to and fro like this, it's, it's hyper abundant insects, particularly mayflies and other insects that have a partial life cycle requirement that is in the water. So take North America, you're driving along the highway and, you know, at one point, maybe several decades ago, there were a lot more wetlands, a lot more waterways that weren't paved over or excavated and drained. Um, We've done a lot of that in North America over the decades. And so when we lose these important little pockets of habitat, critical habitat for the, these hyperabundant insects, we lose those insects, right? So it wasn't the cars that were killing all the insects per se. I mean, clearly there was many of them smacking off your windshield, but it's the loss of the habitat that equals the loss of the species. And um, wetland and habitat in particular, you're saying? especially for those things that bounce off our windshields, because it's in fact, these waterborne kind of, uh, they have an immature life cycle in the water and then they all rise up, mate and die. And it's in that process, we see gas stations absolutely coated in mayflies or car windshields and things like that. And so we lose those, those hyper abundant, you know, aerial protein packs. We also lose the birds. We lose all the creatures that depend on this like boom bust of insect populations. In fact, much of our migratory bird populations that move through North America up north, they're, they're moving up north for that bread basket of insects that are found up near the boreal where all they're coming out of the water um, and so on. So yeah, we lose, uh, we've, we've definitely seen a decline, definitely anecdotally. There's been some studies that have been like longitudinal and been able to like repeat a study after 40 or 50 years and things like that, but there's still like a paucity for those kind of quantified metrics. So, you know, this is alarming and people are paying attention to it now. So it'd be really interesting in 20 years from now, 30 years from now, 
um, the kinds of uh, numbers anecdotally and, you know, quantified that we're seeing. Yeah. Mm. I also heard, um, uh, I read recently that in urban centers in particular, you know, the use of nightlights, uh, you know, to Mm. illuminate public walkways or parks or, uh, you know, uh, any particular, any, any area, parking lots, uh, are also responsible for killing millions of flying insects, particularly moths. And it's not surprising, you know, to hear that because you often see them circling around, you know, they circle around and around until they sort of fly out of existence, I guess, into the lights or whatever. Is this true? Is this a, is this a major source of insect slaughter in our cities? Uh, and if it is, what could be done about it? Hmm. Well, I mean, again, you know, we all have that, we've all made that observation, right? All of us living in cities, we or even outside of cities in rural environments, you look up at a streetlight at night in the summer, and yeah, it's buzzing, buzzing, buzzing with quite a lot of activity. Um, and this is because many, many insects, particularly insects that are like crespuscular, like dawn or dusk or nocturnal come out at night, are using the moonlight to orient towards populations of their own species so that they can mate, right? So these moths are, uh, their their behavior towards uh, moonlight is being usurped or circumvented by these artificial light at night, right? Street lamps and so forth that of course are, you know, critical in urban environments for public safety and circulation and, and human health and well-being, of course. Uh, but they do pose this potential consequence. And there has been a growing number of studies that have looked at artificial light at night. I I can't be sure about the millions uh, uh, numbers. I don't think we have the precision there just yet. A lot of the science that's been done is, you know, extrapolating upwards, right? Doing sampling on some lights and then saying, oh, there's this many lights in this amount of space. So this must cause this amount of damage. So we're altering the behavior and then ultimately the fitness, the reproductive fitness of some of these insects. So they're not able to reproduce effectively. Um, they're also being predated upon. And this is an important thing, I think, too, is that, you know, anthropogenic change, be it filling the wetland or be it erecting artificial light at night, it's, it doesn't just cause a absolute decline in insect diversity, but certain species are much more affected than others. Some may even benefit Think of all the spiders circling those lights. They're benefiting, aren't they? Right? Yeah, so- I've noticed the spider webs actually, uh, orb spiders uh, climbing up light uh, stanchions and, you know, spinning their webs up there to take advantage of the fact that they're all yeah. floating around, you know? So so all life on Earth have a, 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 a niche space, like a, an area where their traits allow them to persist and survive and reproduce. And as urbanization continues or any kind of anthropogenic disturbance, that niche space is affected, right? Like we're changing the environment. And so when the environment falls beyond that space, that can affect certain species. But what that means is that now there's space open in the environment that is not being occupied by those species that are in decline. And that can be exploited and used by other species, right? Now that sounds good and it's, you know, it sounds rosy, but it's actually not because what we have learned with urbanization, for, for, for instance, is that when we, you know, urbanization is, is, is a cause and, and, and impacting environments, um, it's often the specialist or at-risk 
or like ecologically important for that environment, species that disappear and the ones that take their place, of course, are you know um, abundant or like urban tolerant or invasive species, and that can play out in having consequences for ecosystem services, for conservation, and ultimately people's connection to the nature around them. It's changing. One question I would have is, so let's just come back to moss. I wasn't going to ask this because it's kind of in the weeds, but I'm interested. Mm. So moths use the moon to find other moths. Now, I just find, how exactly does that work? I mean, I can see that from a navigational point of view, moonlight comes, it's very different in terms of its angularity, whatever, to the sensors of a moth compared to a streetlight. It's not just light. It will be light plus pheromones. Plus, you know, um, uh, some species will gravitate towards the tops of trees and some will gravitate to the tops of certain trees. Of course, there's a geographic condition too, where uh, where these moths are that you'd expect there would be those moths are around them too. So it's not, it's not I, you're right, without going to the weeds, we could have went a lot further into some of the like physiological, pheromonal mm-hmm. aspects of this. Um, and what this, you know, what you're actually hitting on, and I have no evidence for this, is take all the moth species. Some may have evolved to use the light more in terms of finding mates. Some may have used pheromones more in order to find mates. Some use the tops of trees more. So you can imagine that again, light will affect certain species more than others. Right, right. It's always yeah. more complex. It's yeah. speaking generalities for sure. Always. Yeah. <laughs> interesting. Very interesting. No, the, the insect world is endlessly fascinating. Um so it sounds to me like uh, in some cases we, you know, many cases we lose the the niche species, the native species, and maybe make opportunities for species that we would rather maybe not have in urban centers. Uh, as a result of all these changes that we're doing in terms of development and and land use and lighting. And hey, we'll be back in a moment. We're just going to take a short break. We're with Assistant Professor Scott MacGyver, and we're talking about insects in the urban landscape and the importance of them, and what we've been uh, what we've been doing, either voluntarily or on purpose. We'll be right back. The Living Architecture Monitor is a fully digital quarterly publication by Green Roofs for Healthy Cities, featuring explorations of innovative trends, thought-provoking interviews with industry leaders, and information about the latest developments in green roofs and wall policy throughout North America and the world. The Living Architecture Monitor also hosts the Journal of Living Architecture, a peer-reviewed scientific journal published by the Green Infrastructure Foundation, helping to platform the latest cutting-edge green roof and wall research. With more than 10,000 readers per issue, companies interested in reaching green roof and wall decision makers like green roof professionals, architects, landscape architects, engineers, and policymakers can take advantage of competitive advertising rates with discounts for reoccurring ads. The Living Architecture Monitor is the green roof and wall industry's premier publication. So read the summer biodiversity issue today at livingarchitecturemonitor.com. I'm here speaking with Assistant Professor Scott MacGyver at the University of Toronto, and we're talking about insects, what's happening to them and why. Um, And one of the topics I wanted to delve into, and I know you're a a major expert on this, is bees. Bees are one of the 
insects that have really captured the public uh, imagination lately, particularly honeybees. Mm -hmm. Although it's my understanding that um, honeybees uh, that are, you know, uh, used um, particularly in agriculture are not native to North America. Uh, and in fact, we have many species of native bees. When we first met many, many years ago, uh, you were busy sending out these small bee hotels uh, and asking people uh, to put them on their green roofs and then mail them back to you after a while. So I was wondering if you could um, describe what a bee motel is um, and a little bit about honeybees versus native bees and what you were trying to learn with that research and what you found out. Sure. Yeah. I mean, so, you know, we've just been talking about biodiversity um, a whole bunch and that, uh, you know, biodiversity can amount to many, many species. And you mentioned wild bees and, and bees in general are um, very diverse. They're the most important pollinators in all continents, I mean, except for Antarctica. And there's well over 20,000 bee species identified around the world and many, many likely thousands more to be identified. Um, when we think of bees, many people often think of honeybees. And in fact, there's only a few species of honeybee around the whole world. And in North America, it's almost entirely one species, Apis mellifera, the Western honeybee. And this is a bee that has shared a long, culturally relevant and important history with humans. I mean, dating back to, you know, the Egyptian times and beyond, um, people have been keeping honeybees, right? Domesticating them to a degree um, by moving them into domiciles, into structures where they can construct a hive that then becomes, you know, increasingly, you know, designed and the ability to move them has allowed us to grow vastly the kind of contemporary, you know, large scale agricultural complex in the context of pollinator dependent crops like oranges and blueberries and almonds and in North America and of course, lots of other crops around the world. So you can see now where I'm going with this is that honeybees have been brought to North America for many hundreds of years um, in order to help with pollination services that was primarily geared towards agricultural production. Um, honeybees exist in North America as non-native species alongside many, many thousands of native bee species. In fact, there's over 4,000 native bee species known in North America, bumblebees, mason bees, mining bees, cellophane bees, masked bees, on and on and on, green metallic sweat bees, on and on. And in where I live in Toronto, there's in fact over 300 species of bees known from the region in Toronto and around the, the vicinity, including many of the types of bees we just mentioned. So in our research as scientists interested in biodiversity conservation, you can imagine that we're really interested in the health and well-being of wild native bee species. Increasingly, you know, and less so the, the honeybee, uh, which is domesticated. And when we lose a colony, we can regenerate it by just simply buying a queen and starting over again, which is fantastic. And that resiliency in that system is very effective, again, for pollination of agriculture crops. But again, when we're talking about conservation of bees, we need to think about all these wild bees that are also providing pollination services to all the native crops, all the native flowering plants that we appreciate and enjoy and depend on. So uh, uh, what we were doing in this particular study with the bee hotels is uh, designing a structure that is an artificial analog 
of the natural nesting conditions of a certain suite of wild bee species. When you see bees in the environment and you think about 300 or so bee species in Toronto, but 75% of those bee species nest in the ground. They dig holes or they find holes or they go under rocks and they build their nest on the ground. Cavity nesting bees are those that nest above the ground in logs, in holes in plant stems, even in nail holes in brick or in your fences. And so what we tried to do is design a structure that captured that habitat that they were seeking, dark and dry holes. We set these up on green roofs, in parks, in gardens, in people's backyards to see what species are attracted to them and make nests inside. We can then open them up and identify the species, their reproductive fitness, what flowers they visit, what parasites attack them, and so on and so forth to make uh, inferences on what the local and the landscape factors are that contribute to the diversity and abundance of these important native bee species. So what we did find when we did this work um, is when we put bee hotels on rooftops of different heights and compared them to ground level bee hotels, we found that bee hotels were more diverse and consisted of more native species on the ground. And on the rooftops, we did find colonization, a lot of non-native species, but some native species too, but all colonization and abundance declined with building height. Mm. Right? So that makes sense. I mean, think of uh, where we live in Toronto, it's a fairly flat landscape where maybe there isn't a lot of like evolutionary adaptiveness to fly 80 meters up to find a nest and fly down to get food and so on and so forth. But maybe if we repeated this study in a very topographically heterogeneous environment, like on a Boulder, Colorado, maybe we would find more colonization on greeners because bees are used to this kind of horizontal movement. <laughs> I think I have no idea or vertical movement, sorry, versus more horizontal movement in Toronto. So. It takes a lot of more energy to fly up to 80 meters or whatever the higher rooftops are and then fly down to your food source, unless your food source is the green roof itself. Unless your food source is the green roof itself, right? So what we do know is uh, bee size matters a lot. Smaller bees don't forage as far as larger bees do. So what we do find sometimes on green roofs, 16, like 20 stories sometimes are bumblebees. They can forage long distances to get food. But smaller bees, and again, many, many bee species are quite a bit smaller than bumblebees. Uh, they are actually trying to identify quality habitat where their nest and their food are in close proximity. Because bees, which are different from like flies or aphids or beetles, they're what we call central place foragers they build a nest in a certain location and they forage for resources around that location. So the further you have to go to get food, your reproductive success may be lower because you're spending more time away from the nest, less food is being deposited. And when you're away from the nest, you're susceptible to parasites and predators and things like that too. So what we suggested of course, is that when we're thinking about creating bee habitat, on a green roof, for example, um, we should really allocate resources more so to green roofs that are like low or mid rise versus like high rises. Of course, in Toronto, we, you know, we've got this green roof bylaw, we've got lots of tall skyscrapers going up. Maybe a biodiverse green roof might not be as important 50 stories up as it would be three or six. 
Mm, that's really interesting. And that's from a bee perspective in particular. Bees and solitary wasps. So bees evolved from wasps and many wasp species share very similar habitat requirements as bees. There's cavity nesting wasps, there's ground nesting wasps, and most wasps are solitary, just like these bee hotel occupying bees are, right? Solitary bees are those that make their own nest, lay their own eggs, collect their own food. Every female is her own queen. Contrast that with honeybees, where there's a queen, workers, drones, a system where there are many, sometimes thousands of individuals working together kind of as a super organism. Most other bees don't do that. So you can imagine the competition imposed by a honeybee colony placed on a rooftop or in the city, the competition imposed by them in terms of the available flower resources. Single individual solitary bees are competing with these like large super organisms. And this is a concern for us as we try to promote wild bee conservation and avoid the misconstrued or kind of bee washing element of keeping honeybees as a mode to save bees or to promote pollination services. Bee washing, there's a new term uh, I've never hmm. heard before, Scott. That's a, that's a good one. Um, the, are, are, is that sort of conclusive now? Because, you know, there has been, uh, uh, there are uh, companies that are, um, you know, encouraging people to put beehives on their uh, roofs and they are maintaining them. And, um, you know, uh, I mean, dude, is the science conclusive on that, that that can be a detriment, like you're saying, to to uh, to native bees because of competition for nectar and so forth? Are, are we are we like, do we have pretty much consensus on that? There's probably a maximum number of beehives you want to have on rooftops in a given urban area or? Uh... I think you make a good point there, right? Um, urban environments represent a compendium of stressors to native biodiversity, right? From air pollution to soil compaction, to invasive plant species, to dog urination, you know, on and on. Honeybees are one of those representative anthropogenic stressors we place them in the environment. We could put one or five or 50, and that will have an impact because these are animals that are using resources in the local environment that also is supporting some amount of non-managed biodiversity, right? A whole bunch of them <laughs> in some cases. And so not only uh, do honeybees represent um, a draw on local resources, and as you said, you have to actually account for what resources are in the environment before you can determine how much of an impact um, one or five or 50 colonies would be having, right? And that's, that's a task unto itself, a huge effort to try to map all the available resources in an area so that we can conclusively say, no hives here, but one here or five here, right? I mean, we both know that keeping honeybees provides education, Honey, a means to connect with nature. They're a gateway bee. We learn about native bees after learning about honeybees often. But it is fairly conclusive increasingly that the food drawn from a hive uh, does 
you know, uh, it, it, it inevitably would have an impact on other species that are seeking the same resource. There's one study actually quickly from uh, uh, um, uh, Salt Lake City, sorry, just in the vicinity there by uh, Jim Kane, who's a very famous uh, melatologist, wild bee researcher, who showed in a paper, um, he estimated that the presence of a, a hive in uh, the natural areas that surround uh, this particular city consume the equivalent of the food needed to, to feed 100,000 native wild bees per year. So whether it's 100,000 or 50,000, you know, that's pretty alarming uh, and is requiring more study and more scrutiny. Um, and, you know, unfortunately there is a, an economic reason why there are companies promoting these things. And I think that they're sidestepping some of the real environmental concerns uh, that even folks who are engaging with the activity who are just unaware of some of the prospective negative impacts. Mm -hmm. Another important one is this transmission of diseases. Um, diseases that impact honeybees, for example, have been found now in bumblebees and even the leafcutter bees. So we need to be increasingly aware um, and uh, scrutinizing some of these initiatives that purport to be environmentally sensitive or positive. Bee washing. Mm, let me push back a little bit more on this one. Um, how do we know that the food supply is limited? Um, in urban areas. I mean, I know that honeybees can travel several kilometers or miles beyond the hive, right? To look for food. Uh, they have a range. Mm -hmm. I think that's well-established, right? Yeah. Um, and again, that range, like for all bees, and some of them are just a few dozen meters. And in the case of honeybees, as you mentioned, they can go quite far. They don't, you know, there's not a desire to go that far because that's a major expense of energy. The goal is to go the shortest distance for the largest reward in many cases. You know, you say one beehive, the study says one beehive conserved, uh, consumed enough food for a uh, hundred thousand native bees. My question is, well, is food the, the scare is food scare? How do we even know that that food is scarce? Uh, you know, I mean, that's with. a very valid point. But the question then is, do we just ignore that? Because, you know, we don't know for sure. So we do know for sure that uh, the amount of pollen and nectar contained on the corbicula, the legs of a honeybee, when you scrape those off and you put it together, that amounts to a, basically the amount of pollen and nectar consumed by a single native wild bee individual. And so simply just looking at those numbers, you could uh, infer that the competition for the resources is present, how important that competition is for losing wild bees is a question that is very much context dependent, like you said, right? Mm -hmm. So I think uh, in an agricultural setting, honeybees are fantastic and they're amazing animals and they benefit humans like extraordinarily. Putting one in the middle of a city center or in a natural native natural park, I question the reasoning uh, for that hmm. because it isn't necessarily an, an argument of they're promoting native species of plants because in fact, when we do the DNA barcoding on a lot of these colonies, it's often spontaneous rural plants that are non-native here and are very abundant. And of course these bees are from 
Europe where those species are native, clovers and trefoils and all these things. So to your point, it is the case possibly that a lot of the food that honeybees are eating are not the food that is mostly desirable by the native bees, but therein lays, it, it initiates another conversation of honeybees promoting and pollinating and leading to greater seed set of plants that are non-native prospectively or are invasive, which then affects native habitat, which then infects native bees and other organisms. So, <laughs> so the yeah. web of complexity just gets ever greater, right? <laughs> I, I always say in Around class that, that you uh, pull at something in nature, you pull a string and everything shimmers, right? Everything. Yeah. Moves, so. I think that's, a. am not sure that's an original Scott MacGyver thought, but I, I <laughs> heard that. Um, hey, down back to native bee support. Um, uh, just sidestepping the honeybee uh, on the rooftop um, approach. So, if, if we weren't going to put a honey uh, a hive up there for honeybees, what mm. what would we do? What could be good aside from the height of the building? Let's say that's a foregone conclusion. Um, what mm. can we do to support insect general insect related biodiversity? What should we be doing in the design of our green roofs just to give insects a leg up? Yeah, sure. I mean, um, some of the, like, I mean, first of all, I have to say again, um, two things affect the biological communities of the given area, local factors and landscape factors, right? So when we can create a green roof, we can address a lot of the local factors. It's hard to address the landscape factors on a single project, right? You, we can do, you know this, we can put a lot of things on a green roof. We can have deep, deep soils, we can have mature trees. Um, but if that condition, set of conditions is deep within the city center without much other you know, natural green space context, then no matter how much effort we put in, it may not be as beneficial as our targets you know, we, we've been striving to achieve. So. I think really important when we're thinking about making a green roof that has a, a very much a focus on supporting biodiversity is understanding the landscape context, right? Um, very important. So I think that is, uh, you know, a low hanging fruit point to make there. I think uh, with respect to the actual project, um, perhaps there are certain suites of species that are a focus, right? So. Um, there are many kinds of features one might create to create, you know, beetle habitat. Think of Stefan Brenizer's work, adding logs and rocks and structures that um, create heterogeneity, create cooling and moisture. Heterogeneity, that's a big word. Yeah, heterogeneity just simply means differences, right? So take, for example, um, a sedum, a green roof that is a sedum mat on a homogenous substrate depth. Uh, you know, one could argue that that would not be a very heterogeneous project, right? It's got a very simplistic plant community that's of one kind of functional type. It's got like a uniform substrate depth. So these are great to manage and to maintain, but they aren't providing that heterogeneity that affords, like circling back to a previous conversation, more niches, more differences. So thinking about differences is a great way to strategize the implementation of a green roof. And again, Stefan Brenneisen thinking about beetles was adding logs and rocks to create areas where, you know, evapotranspiration is lower, there's more moisture or there's shade. 
there's organic material that's like slowly decomposing and so on. Um, native plants, really important too. Uh, increasingly, as you know, like in Ontario and elsewhere around the world, there has been a great focus on what local plant communities might actually work on green roofs. And, you know, there's quite a few that have uh, risen to the surface. So these focus on these kinds of plants can be uh, important for the, you know, oviposition sites for butterflies or nectar provisioning for bees or flies. And then of course, all the other animals that eat these things like birds and bats. Um, the last thing I would say is uh, diversity in the substrate. So mounding, um, uh, playing with substrate depth. Uh, and of course, to supplemental irrigation, right? We both know greeners are very stressed, very harsh, not always, but um, with great advances in stormwater management and the technical kind of refinement and conditions that newer buildings have from underground cisterns and rainwater collection apparatuses and so on. Um, we are increasingly at single project scales, um, sometimes having a surplus of gray water. And so, you know, if there's a goal of making more biodiverse systems on green roofs, um, water is an, a very good ingredient for that. That's great. That's really, uh, that's interesting stuff. Um, and uh, very useful for the designers of the systems that are interested in trying to incorporate um, green, uh, more insect life, more biodiversity into their projects. What about other forms of green infrastructure, like land-based stuff, like bioswales or urban forests or green walls? What type of what type of measures, design measures, principles should we be looking at with those types of technologies to increase increase biodiversity? I mean, again, fun, fundamentally, from from my perspective, again, like uh, you know, these are very different systems you just mentioned. Yes, you know, an urban forest and a green wall are, you know, really doing completely different things. But I think once again. Um, heterogeneity and differences uh, to the extent possible. And I, I say that in the context of like the green wall example, right? We know that these can be quite limiting environments just simply because of the way they're constructed and, you know, wind and, you know, the implementation of them. However, knowing that like creeping time will work really well on this like green wall um, will flower and in great blooms because it's, you know, southeast facing, getting lots of sun. That's going to be like a boon of nectar for all sorts of species that depend on that. And time, a very non-complex, simple, small flower. And as I mentioned, a lot of bees, a lot of insects are small. They can get at that nectar very readily. So, uh, working within the context of the system and those that are building a green wall know what I'm talking about. Um, an urban forest or a small forest plot that could be, you know, very different scenario, right? Where um, thinking about the longevity of the project is probably a lot more important than like a green wall. Uh, and when I say that, you know, I'm thinking even exponentially longer, right? In terms of length. So tree spacing and tree species selection and stuff, we, no, no need to go into that right now, but I think the main point I would like to make is uh, native species, acknowledging local versus landscape context, what, what we can control and what we can't, um, and uh, uh, um, differences 
Yeah. Striving wow. for differences. I, I will say one last thing with respect to the urban forest too. Many of the other green infrastructure types that we work with is uh, buy-in from communities, right? People have to want that or understand why it's there and what it's doing for people and for nature. So I think uh, that's another element of local, you know, whether it's the building owner or it's the people who occupy it, or it's the folks who live in the neighborhood that will be interacting with or using these spaces. We have to engage uh, those communities and ensure that they participate in some of the uh, decision-making. Yes, and that can be very important for the longevity of these systems mm -hmm. itself yeah. as well. Yeah, that's uh, those are some great design uh, tips for improving the level of biodiversity uh, in your green infrastructure projects. And uh, clearly, one of the messages I'm I'm hearing is diversity. Uh, the diversity, little microclimates are tremendously important. Native plants are really important, um, and um, th that's very helpful stuff. We'll be right back with um, Assistant Professor Scott MacGyver at the University of Toronto Scarborough to talk a little bit more about green infrastructure, climate change, and his thoughts for the future. So join us. In 2023, Green Roofs for Healthy Cities is taking our smaller scale Greater Green Conference on the road, featuring a strong focus on local design and policy considerations and addressing regional priorities through practical solutions. The next stop on our tour will be in Grand Rapids, Michigan at Grand Valley State University on August 9th and 10th. Join local designers, policymakers, and innovators for expert presentations, tours, networking, and a trade show. The event is approved for seven continuing education credits and registration starts at only $125. This event will also feature a reception, tour, and award ceremony at the John Ball Zoo for its achievement of a platinum certification through the Living Architecture Performance Tool, along with opening remarks from Grand Rapids Mayor Rosalind Bliss. Special thanks to our sponsors at Live Roof and Live Wall, Green Infrastructure Foundation, and Habitect and Permalock for their support of this event. For more information, visit us at greatogreenconference.org, and we hope to see you there. We're back with Professor Scott MacGyver, the University of Toronto, Scarborough, talking about green infrastructure and how it can be used to support insects, which have been in decline for several decades and are very, very important to us. Many of us don't realize this, but they're tremendously important because they help uh, ecosystems provide a whole range of services that support our ability to exist, and they have an intrinsic right to exist on their own. Um, Scott, uh, tell me a little bit about climate change and what you think is going on in terms of its impact of on the natural world. Uh, I understand you're doing some research on the urban heat island, the overheating of our cities because of impervious services and its impact on insects. Could you tell us a little bit more about all this work and what the urban heat island is, maybe start with that? Sure, yeah, it's certainly the first part of your question, how climate change is affecting biological communities. That's a that's a very long conversation, but uh, you know, what is striking, um, I think, you know, we've talked a few times about anecdotal, you know, what we're feeling, what we're seeing. And one thing people are definitely feeling is extreme heat events, right? Mm -hmm. um, we are increasingly, um, you know, seeing these play out uh, across Canada and the world. 
And uh, those extreme heat events, you know, as a result of climate warming, um, play out slightly differently in urban environments. You mentioned the urban heat island effect, and this is essentially the built environment absorbing, you know, solar radiation, and then emit, em emitting that as latent heat, right, when it cools down. So, you know, we go out into nature, and during the day, it's blazing hot, and at nighttime, it's cold. We go in the city, and the daytime is blazing hot, and it's still hot at night, right? It's because that heat is emitting from, from our built infrastructure. There's other things like, you know, exhaust from uh, vehicle transport and other things that cause heating from more of a kind of an air pollution standpoint that we can set aside for now. But the point is, is that climate change, climate warming, and the urban heat island effect, these are interacting. Um, and in a synergistic way that does not bode well for human well-being and probably also wildlife, right? Um, so we're really interested in the urban heat island effect and how it can have an influence on the pollination systems in the flowers and, and ecosystems that we study in cities. Take this, for example, I just mentioned that anecdote about nighttime being hotter in cities. Flowers are visited by pollinators 24 hours a day. We see bees because we are diurnal animals and we see them in the sunlight. But uh, you mentioned moths earlier, there's lots of nocturnal species also visiting flowers. You take all the species of flowers that we appreciate and enjoy, and there's a ratio of like how much pollination is uh, bestowed on these various flowering species from daytime or nighttime visitors. Might the urban heat island effect influence nighttime versus daytime visitors more or less? And so we're embarking on those questions, not by sending students out with flashlights all night to look at flowers, but we've actually built cameras um, from Raspberry Pi computers that uh, can record the visitors to flowers using motion detection, macro lens, and day to nighttime uh, transition in the lens to record all the visitors to select flowers and across urban landscapes so that we can characterize how those differences in the day versus night are being affected depending on urban temperature levels. I mean, just to reiterate or to make one point, you know, humans and birds, we're endotherms, right? We derive our internal temperatures, which support our existence um, from our, uh, uh, from the food we eat, right? Our metabolism is contingent on the energy we put in our bodies. Whereas insects or uh, fish are ectotherms and their temperature, their core temperatures are regulated by the temperature of the environment. Mm -hmm. So when it's too cold, insects slow down. When it's too hot, insects slow down. And so you can imagine that with extreme heat events or persistent longer hot days, this could influence pollination services, as of course, as well as a bevy of other important services that we depend on from mm -hmm. urban nature. So we're really interested in urban heat on the effect from the context of how it affects wildlife and biodiversity. And uh, some, uh, in concordance, how can we design green spaces that have the largest cooling footprint? extend beyond the green space into the urban matrix to 
uh, uh, protect or add resilience to our urban environments from these effects. Maybe there's different combinations of trees or forest and open green space or et cetera that uh, might be um, having uh, a greater cooling effect. And that's a big focus of our research now. That's really, really interesting stuff. Have you, Has anybody looked at the impact of the urban heat island uh, effect? Because this could mean, uh, you know, apparently like much higher temperatures in the three to four degrees, potentially centigrade or, you know, eight or nine degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, so pretty significant temperature differences between cities and the surrounding countryside. Has anybody looked at water? Because uh, I'm thinking maybe the water availability is impacted by the urban heat island, which in turn would impact all these plants, right? And mm -hmm. their survivability, or, you know, even with slower moving insects or whatever, just mm -hmm. the urban heat island alone is going to have some significant um, deleterious effects potentially on the plant communities in our cities. And circling back to what we talked about earlier, that like niche space, right? And how the anthropogenic change alters the environment, ultimately kicking out some species that can't persist. And maybe it's pavement or maybe it's, you know, dog urination as we talked earlier, but maybe it's also just simply those incrementally higher or extreme temperatures. And so, you know, this gets back to a bigger um, uh, focus of a lot of the research is, okay, urbanization is like a compendium of different anthropogenic stressors, we said, right? Air pollution, hot weather, and this results in an environmental filter, right? That filters biological communities so that only or increasingly so species that are urban tolerant, you know, able to persist are those that we experience in cities. You know, we've been doing some, some of this work to try to think about like, um, you know, this engagement with nature that, you know, maybe our grandparents had in Toronto versus what our kids will have in the future and how, what is that signature of urban nature and how it's changing, right? The, the environmental filter that the city imposes ultimately affects the species that are in the city and ultimately those that will benefit from any kind of biodiversity conservation measure or, or approach that we take. We can make a biodiverse green roof, but if the city itself has already filtered down the community based on heat or compaction or whatever, then it's only really those species that are going to benefit from that green roof, right? Mm -hmm. um, so, which is still important and very, very much, an, you know, a pursuit that's very worthy and critical for ecosystem services and the resiliency and stability of these things. Mm -hmm. But that's kind of this like creeping thing in the background here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's like we're uh, we're thinning out, like the, the the stresses that we're going to experience as a result of climate change is going to kind of thin out the survival. And I'm just thinking about birds as one example of that. Um, but it makes you think about like you know cities are their own unique kind of environment. Now we see around the world cities are growing faster than most others, and you know we need to recognize that this is a place where people live and where well-being is needed and so on so uh we can't expect to return toronto back to a carolinian forest or a mm -hmm. uh, you know a black oak savanna um but what of those elements can we integrate into our environment to make them as effective as possible corridors between these habitats 
uh, et cetera. So um, lots to learn and figure out still. Yes. And the more we can adapt to and prepare for things like increasing temperatures and more intense rainfall and so forth, yeah. the wider that palette of biodiversity becomes, mm-hmm. which is, which is, I guess, ultimately the, the challenge for many cities. Um, you, you want a broader palette, right? Uh, yeah, if we're that, working with a broader palette, that's going to make our projects, our, our implementations that much more effective. And more resilient in and of themselves, I would think as well, right? Because I think so. Resiliency yeah. and complexity go hand in hand, right? In terms of ecosystems, I believe. Yeah, I think in many cases that's that is the case. I mean, there's many examples of, for example, stressed environments. Going back to our green roofs, you know, a lot of green roof research has been um, has focused on finding stressed environments in nature, right? From rocky outcrops and alvars and so on, and sometimes those environments can be fairly simplistic because the communities of plants that live there, I mean, are already stressed and, uh, you know, often need to work together, things like that. So uh, either way, yes, I think the broader palette approach will drive resiliency and stability rather than focusing on single species or single habitats. One of the things I've been promoting in, in my work is, is the, the notion that we need to capture all the rainwater that falls in the city, as much rainwater as possible, and use it to grow more plant life. Mm. Like this is a basic development principle. And, and yeah. that will help us deal with things like the urban heat island and and biodiversity loss and intensive rainfall and human health and well-being. Would you agree that that as a very say a hundred thousand foot level, that's a good place to start? I mean. Absolutely. But what you may find uh, is that we have an an excess of water in terms of its utility, right? Because in a natural space, let's say, if we were to say, let all the water fall where it lands to recharge below and biomass productivity above, we're not growing trees on the highway or where there's a hospital or where there's someone's house, right? So all of that land that is infrastructure is replacing what would otherwise in a natural space be, you know, uh, successional processes that drive that into a forest. So I, I, we may not need to be as absolute. Of course, we need water for all kinds of other things like if straight up evapotranspirative of cooling to cool the city. So I think ultimately what you are advocating for is a really good idea. We may just not need all of that just for the vegetation, but for all kinds of other useful uh, reasons that can make us just that much more, as you said, adapted to uh, or to mitigate against some of these like climate effects. Yeah, I'm not just thinking about rooftops here. It could be wetlands, could be reflective ponds, it could be mm. a variety of things. But we don't want to, these precious water resources just to run off, uh, you know, get piped into huge pipes and pumped into, uh, you know, receiving body water bodies when we have the water is so precious, right? To mm-hmm. us, it should be captured and used. Um, mm-hmm. Hey, I think I read somewhere that you were also looking your team at food production on green roofs. Can you share with us uh, any information about what that looks like, turning over the sort of food production component? Yeah, I mean, um, for quite a while now, we've been really interested in um, complementary plantings and functional types of plants and how these interact to you know, 
ultimately represent greater diversity and trying to understand how that can improve the ecosystem services like afforded by green roofs, right? From, from the amount of water captured based on, you know, the amount of root volume underground or the amount of above ground biomass, like capturing and intercepting that water or, you know, in terms of cooling, perhaps like a more, uh, you know, a suite of plant plants that represent different, you know, growth forms or leaf shapes and uh, or timing of their growth may uh, reflect more sun or, or absorb more of that heat that is used in, you know, evapotranspirative processes. So we've been very much um, focused on uh, plant diversity and substrate diversity and its contribution to ecosystem services. And this has naturally led us I mean, we all eat a little sedum here and there. It's very edible, uh, most species anyways. Uh, and uh, this naturally led us to start to think about some of the uh, food you know, plants that could be grown on green roofs. Um, one, in terms of a call to uh, advocate for food security, like all hands on deck approach, which a lot of these kinds of research topics are trying to uh, be mindful of. Um, but also, uh, you know, okay, uh, there's now like over 800, 900 or so green roofs in Toronto alone. They're becoming like kind of part of like the common vernacular of like green space in cities. Many of these are extensive green roofs, right? Shallow uh, systems that, um, you know, if we can start to understand what food plants could grow in these systems in a very kind of um, quick and dirty way, we may be able to implement or, or um, uh, and, you know, bring these systems into the food production, you know, kind of uh, periphery. Uh, and so what we've been focusing on is the role of nurse-protege interactions in promoting env uh, environmental amelioration. So ameliorating the conditions on green roofs to allow for some of these plants to grow and produce vi viable and edible products. So we've been mostly working with uh, bush beans um uh kales uh a lot of herbs um as well as like more culturally appropriate food items we live in a very diverse city so interacting with our partners um uh, the sustainable food and farming futures cluster at utsc and a lot of our community gardening uh, uh groups that are uh, serving marginalized communities to try to understand what uh crops are in demand in these communities and what of these might be suitable for green roofs so right now we have a project where we're simply testing 20 to 30 different crops and herbs on our green roofs at UTSC and in community gardens nearby, just to simply look at yield. We are also looking at the role of sedum and other plants as uh, nurse plants in these systems, you know, following along some of the previous work of our old colleague Colleen Butler and others um, as well, because of course, extensive green roofs are hotter drier, maybe even more so than what is captured within the geographic area of Toronto and Southern Ontario, are we nearing a point where extensive green roofs or green roofs in general, which are open and exposed and hot, might become places where we can grow crops in Toronto, you know, crops that we couldn't grow here before, like lentils or peanuts or uh, chickpeas and, and things like that, that we don't conventionally grow in Toronto or in Southern Ontario, but could green roofs be those places where uh, these unconventional crops might be grown kind of uh, 
uh, a hat tip to crops that might be relevant to be growing in our city of the future. Fascinating work. Love to have an opportunity to check that out. Um, yeah, hydro- come on down anytime. Hydroponics comes to mind immediately uh, in terms of allowing for sufficient nutrients. Um, I believe there was a student some time ago, and maybe it was Brad Bass's student, uh, Dr. Brad Bass, who was with the University of Toronto. We, he did. We did a, a um, Sustainable Futures podcast with him, one of our first actually, had a student that did, was able to grow a wide variety of vegetables on an extensive, very lightweight system, but but they, they were supplied with nutrients through the irrigation system. That was the key to being able to do that. Mm. So that might be something worth considering, but boy, that's interesting work that you're uh, doing there. Anything else you might, might want to share with us before we, uh, we close up today, uh, Scott? Um, any other research topics that are juicy and interesting that you can give us a little taste of? I mean, just, you know, one overarching thing that we're really interested in the lab, and this really came out during COVID where we weren't doing as much like community science in the lab, thinking about the methodology that we use as scientists, as ecologists, um, and working with practitioners, you know, in, in science, we're often constrained by cost or time. And so we need to evaluate small plots or a subset of the environments and then extrapolate Um, what we've learned to say something about the larger space. And we've been really thinking about that in the lab to the extent that we've now developed a research program where we are using, you know, air deployed thermal cameras like drones um, and machine learning and computer vision in order to try to, at scale, capture the environmental conditions within a habitat. So for example, over a hundred meter area, how many goldenrod plants are there? How many ground nesting bird nests are there? How much invasive species of dog, how much dog strangling vine is within these large areas that would take forever to truly survey every individual? We've now been working to, you know, take images and stitch them together to um, draw conclusions at scale. And I think, you know, circling back to that honeybee point about how much resources do we know are in the environment? Well, that's what we're trying to figure out now. And in ways that is automated, is is reproducible, uh, is low cost, and provides like training on novel technologies that certainly go far beyond ecological science and study. That's one thing we've been really interested in. And the second is, again, trying to balance urban planning uh, in ways that supports people and nature. I mentioned earlier that to enact conservation that works, it has to be just, it has to be inclusive of the people that live and experience these spaces. Um, public buy-in and people understanding why you're doing what you're doing or what you're advocating for is so critical in uh, biodiversity conservation uh, that works. Uh, in cities. And so that's another major avenue for us right now. Yeah, Yeah, we can't forget the human element. That is, that's for sure. So tremendously important. Um, One way I'd like to sort of leave off, this has been a fascinating discussion. We've covered a lot of ground and just for the average listener, what can they do in their own way? uh, You know, as as citizens to support insect life in the city, how, 
how would you suggest we can live together a little bit more harmoniously? I'm, I mean, um, I, I will say that we are living in an era of, you know, tremendous eco-anxiety. We're living in an era of climate change and a feeling like no matter what I do, it doesn't matter. It's the big corporations or it's, you know, impending and it's stressing me out because I can't do anything. But I am a very like glass half full kind of person. And I think particularly in the context of plants and pollinators, insects, as you know, this entire podcast topic is focused on, there is direct positive impacts that people can have, right? If you are able to and have the, you know, uh, 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 privilege to have private green space, then certainly gardening, native plants, differences, all these things we mentioned are very, very important. Many people, of course, don't have access to that, but there may be other engagement opportunities like uh, uh, advocating for community space, food gardens, working with these kinds of uh, local organizations and nonprofits that are trying to make these things more um, integrated into our green spaces in cities. I mean, and finally, of course, we need to push for public green space in our city and in other cities. Cities are growing. People uh, are uh, flocking to cities for a whole bunch of important reasons, whether it be jobs or healthcare or whatever. Um, but one thing we all need is to access nature daily if possible, right? The immersive qualities of nature, sometimes just the soft fascination of staring at a butterfly on a flower can be very restorative and, uh, you know, scaling that up to walking in a park and, you know, reducing stress and improving attention and caring about nature. This is so critical for our cities in the future. So mm -hmm. I really am putting out there that uh, people need to uh, recognize the importance of green space, not just for nature, but for us too. And we need to collectively advocate for these spaces being accessible to the public now and in the future. I mean, of course, you may know I'm referencing Ontario Place in Toronto, a specific example, but this is happening in cities all around the world. Um, and we need to be uh, collectively more engaged in protecting these green spaces in cities. Mm -hmm. We shouldn't have to jump into a car or take a bus and travel for an hour or two to get these kinds of experiences. They should be just almost within reach of where we live everywhere in a city, 15 minute city, right? That there's parks within a 15 minute walk of everyone. Mm. That'd be great. So you should know, Scott, that um, one of the things I'm doing is I'm working with a couple of colleagues uh, and we're going to be doing a at the ASLA conference a deep dive session on designing for biodiversity. Oh, wow. Uh, with a, a landscape architects to try to get them more sort of woke to what can be done and to be thinking about that type of stuff. I don't know if you're planning on going. You're, you're probably doing more academic conferences at this point than anything else, I would imagine. But yeah, yeah. I, I don't, I haven't really been to ASLA stuff in, in quite a while, but that sounds really great. And I mean, you know, another takeaway from all that is just we learn by doing, right? We try and we grow from, you know, those points. So I think landscape architects are poised to make big contributions to this uh, kind of conversation. So, great.
yes, I think there's a, a there's a there's a, a large number of them that are woke to the the climate emergency and what we have to do and, and so forth. So they're a good group, uh, good group to work with. We we enjoy it very much. Hey, uh, where do people find out a little bit more about your lab, your work that you're doing? Where would you direct people? Yeah, I mean, uh, just simply going into your favorite search engine and typing bugs lab and UTSC, you'll get uh, our lab website, which is mckiverlab.ca. Um, you know, and that's probably the best way, you know, I'm on Twitter and things like that, but uh, probably our lab website is the best. And we really strive to ensure all of our research is publicly accessible in, in open access journals, that the data are available as well too. Um, so really, if anybody's interested in connecting with myself or our lab, uh, who are listening to this podcast, please uh, reach out. That's uh, McIver. Was that was that McIver? M A C I V O R. Yeah, lab.ca. Lab.ca. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Scott, for your time and uh, your passion and your ongoing work. You're moving off in some very important areas in terms of helping us. Uh, have more sustainable cities, more sustainable futures. And for that, we're, we're really grateful. So thank you very much. Thanks so much for inviting me. This has been great. Great. And with that, uh, that concludes our uh, podcast number nine with uh, Assistant Professor Scott MacGyver, who is uh, tremendously knowledgeable and uh, passionate about uh, insects in our urban environment and what we can do. We hope you have enjoyed this. Check out some of our other podcasts and we'll look forward to um, catching up with you in the future. Thank you.